Lord, we do thank you for these realities that we heard about this morning of of all the blessings that are ours in Christ, these realities that we've sung about this evening. And so as we gather together to look into your word, we we realize we come together as, as those who are kind of first installments of the new creation. What a marvelous reality that's just beyond anything we usually uh, think about, that you've already started that work uh, through your people in the old creation. And so uh, I just thank you for that. What a, what a privilege to gather together with your people, to worship you, to look to your revelation, to understand it better. I pray, Lord, that we would just uh, rejoice in those realities. And even now, as we look to your word, just have a a thoughtfulness and eagerness uh, to to understand it rightly tonight. Uh, help us to do that. Help me to be clear. Help us to be attentive. And help us even to begin seeing the way this ought to be shaping our own thinking in the present time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've had a number of breaks. It seems like we, we have one class period and then we're off for two weeks or a week. And then we have another one and we're off for a week. So maintaining the continuity has probably been a little bit difficult and yet in many ways this class has been a lot about the continuity and making the connections so let me just start with a little bit of review here in terms of the goals for the class uh, number one i want you to grasp maybe for the first time or if you've already understood these things in the past go deeper in your understanding of what we might call like the overarching uh salvation history arc. God has been working out a plan of salvation uh, throughout history, and it all holds together. And so I want you to see that as we work through these books. You might think of the period covered by the Pentateuch as like chapter one in that history, in salvation history. And then in another sense, the former prophets being like chapter two. In many ways, as I mentioned the first week, we can connect the former prophets, to the Pentateuch, and you basically get the, the narrative backbone, the, the arc of the story from creation through really to the end of the Old Testament period. Not quite. Second Kings ends us in the middle of exile, and obviously there are some books that take us a bit beyond that. Um, but really, kind of that's the backbone of the Old Testament storyline. But my goal is not simply that we would understand those events. Many of us understand the basic events. We could talk about the basic sequence, the kind of things that you saw on the timeline that I gave you. But more importantly, my goal is that you understand the why, how it all fits together. Now, what is the the explanation that causes all of these events to cohere as one unified plan of God to work out redemption? So that's one of my goals, but then also, it's the second one, but tied to that, it's not simply that in some kind of abstract sense, abstracted from any particular text of scripture, that we would see that, but that we would see that as we look at specific texts of scripture. I don't have a, I don't see it being two different things, because I think the biblical authors are intensely doing this very thing. They are intensely after this kind of what I would call biblical theology, tying together these dots, these connections. So I I want to not just be theoretical in that, but actually allow that to come as we look at specific texts. And so that's why we've been working just through texts and actually allowing them to drive the agenda. So as we come to each one of these books, we've been asking, what's the situation in which they were written? 
And that's much harder in the former prophets than it is in the Pentateuch. We have a lot more clarity, I think, in the Pentateuch than we do in the former prophets. But nonetheless, trying to understand something of the situation from which they're being written. What was a situation that gave rise to this? And then what's the purpose? Why did the author write this book? What did he hope that his readers would do or think or both as a result of reading this book? So purpose, and then also the structure. How did the author structure the book? What are the sections? And as we've worked section by section through that to understand how each one of those sections is accomplishing that purpose. I think that to the extent we can understand the purpose of a book, the structure, and how each section is working toward accomplishing that, even if it's somewhat of a high-altitude understanding, we've really gotten our mind, at least at a high-altitude level, around the book. Sometimes when we just as everyday Bible readers who read a chapter at a time or kind of trudge through a Bible study, a verse at a day, a verse a day. Um, sometimes miss the, the forest for the trees, don't we? And so it's good to pull up and to be able to just see the forest because the forest needs to inform our reading of the trees and the reading of the trees needs to inform the, our understanding of the forest. And so there's that back and forth. So I think this is helpful in providing that, that forest look. So that's what we've been aiming to do here in this class. And what have we covered so far? Uh, First, we started with a review of the Pentateuch and spent most of our first week looking at that. And we did that because God's revelation is progressive. Subsequent revelation assumes that the reader understands prior revelation. It's building on it. And therefore, we can't just parachute in to the former prophets without understanding the Pentateuch. And I, I don't say that like as an overstatement. I think that really is true. If you came to the former prophets without any understanding of the Pentateuch, I'm, I'm, I don't think it's an overstatement at all to say you, you must misunderstand the former prophets. Um, so that's why we spent time uh, reviewing the Pentateuch. And essentially we saw that God's purpose in creation, how that was, God's purpose in creation, how that was affected by sin, and how all the rest is about God's working to restore and complete his purpose in creation. And I said that God's purpose in creation was to fill creation with his images or image bearers who will live in his relational presence and rule over creation on his behalf. To say it a bit differently, they are to live in his relational presence enjoy the blessings of his relational presence, and then work to extend those blessings to all of creation. But that all fell apart when Adam and Eve disobeyed, when the first humans preferred to assert their independence in deciding what's right and what's wrong, rather than trusting the creator of all, their kind Lord, and what he had told them was good and best. And as a result, they were exiled from his relational presence, cut off from the fullness of life available there and thereby unable to rule over creation on his behalf. But everything subsequently is about God's purpose, God's intention, God's plan to restore and to complete that. Beginning first with a promise that the Lord will do this ultimately through a future descendant of the woman from Genesis 3.15. Then we found genealogies that led us up to Abraham. And I said that the promises to Abraham, uh, beginning in Genesis chapter 12, but then being kind of filled out further in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 and in some other texts as well, especially as it's repeated to, to Isaac and to Jacob, are really the foundation for 
all of salvation history. Everything is flowing out of that. And so we, we saw that and understood a bit of what's going on there, that in those promises to Abraham, God promises a particular land that will become like a replacement garden, a place where he will dwell in the midst, in their midst, the midst of his people, and bless them. He promises he will multiply Abraham's descendants, and that from that land, those descendants and that particular ultimate descendant promised in Genesis 3.15 will extend the blessings of that land, of God's relational presence there, to all of creation. Then we saw how the Mosaic Covenant comes in, really to administrate the outworking of the promises in the Abrahamic Covenant. At least some of the promises in the Abrahamic Covenant. I'm not sure that the Mosaic Covenant was ever designed to carry out all that's promised in the Abrahamic Covenant, but at least some of it is, is going to be worked out, and not just some of it, but for a particular period of time. The Mosaic Covenant was intended to be working those things out. And really, that period of time is the whole Old Testament. So that becomes the lens through which sort of the, the Abrahamic promises are being filtered or being worked out throughout the whole Old Testament. So it's important to understand kind of what's going on there. And then under the Mosaic uh, Covenant, it's specifically providing, we might say, conditions for the people of Israel, for the covenant people, for inheriting the promises given to Abraham. And that condition is primarily obedience to the covenant. They must obey the covenant if they are to receive the things promised. And that Mosaic covenant is what you know, the author of Hebrews calls the old covenant. Um, Paul often just refers to it as the law. The law covenant is the idea, but often he refers to the law. He has in mind the, the, the Mosaic covenant. Sometimes the laws themselves, but the laws as a part of that now obsolete covenant. And then we looked at how biblical narrative works, so we might interpret it rightly. And then we jumped into Joshua, saw that that kind of leads us up into the promised land, explains how God was absolutely faithful in giving them that land, in, in fulfilling his promises to them. And it shows the connection between that massive advance in terms of inheriting God's promises and the obedience of the people particularly under the, the faithful leadership of Joshua, right? So we're seeing those pieces come together. But we also see how, with like Achan, the advance of those promises can come to a grinding halt when there's disobedience, right? Which is just the, the principle from the Mosaic Covenant being put into practice. So we see that being worked out and at the very end of the book of Joshua. Joshua charges his, his hearers in his presence that if, if, if the promises of God are going to be con continue to be inherited by you, you're going to continue to receive more and more of those until their fulfillment, then you must continue in obedience. And that's where Joshua left us, but then we saw last time we were together that Judges picks up and recognizes that's kind of where Joshua left them, but the things changed quickly afterward. And we saw how this just began this, this uh, spiral of decline through these cycles, ending in really a pretty hopeless situation at the end and that book judges was i think written to basically hold up a mirror to the people and say look what's become of you essentially and the reason it gives a theological interpretation showing them the reason is because they aren't being faithful to the lord because of their disobedience and then it really ends though when you're like in this spot of being so hopeless you're even wondering can the people even change these patterns by holding out hope for a future king right 
a future king who will come. And that's where we left off and kind of with this question of, yeah, but a king, kingship, like I've read other parts of the Bible. Can, can kingship really be the hope for Israel? Is there really any hope in that? And so Samuel's really going to address many of those things. The books of Samuel pick up where Judges leaves off. Really the first part of the books of Samuel are kind of continuing in the Judges period. Samuel's a judge. Um, the text even indicates that the high priest Eli was a judge before him. So we're picking up at that part of the, the storyline and then we'll see the rise of kingship. So with that, we uh, pick up with where your uh, handout begins there. So starting with that pattern that we've been following, the situation uh, for, well, actually, before we jump into the situation, what in our Bibles is two books? Very helpfully named. First Samuel and Second Samuel are actually one book. They're one work. Um, it was only with the translation of the Hebrew Bible into, into Greek uh, where they began splitting them. And in fact, Hebrew Bibles continued up through um, an edition of the Bible in the 1500s, the Hebrew Bible in the 1500s, to treat them as one book. And then they eventually, the Hebrew Bible began to follow suit and split into two books. But everything shows very clearly that throughout its history, it was treated as one unified work. So I'm going to treat it similarly. The outline I give you just ignores the division between First and Second Samuel and runs right on through. You can see that point number three begins at 1 Samuel 16 and continues through 2 Samuel 4. So just keep that in mind as we move through this. So now the situation, the situation which gave rise to the book. Quite frankly, we don't know a whole lot about it. We don't know who the author was. We have no idea who the author was. Um, rabbinic tradition says Samuel wrote some of it. They recognize that his death is recorded at, in, I think it's 1 Samuel 25. So he couldn't have written much beyond that. But then it says that certain um, prophets like uh, Nathan and Gad finished it off. Uh, but it's just speculation. We don't really know. We do have records that they kept some records from things that were happening, but no indication they wrote this book. So we don't know who wrote it. That's okay. We don't really need to know who wrote it. And then in terms of the time, it could be a wide, a wide range. We know it had to be, from certain indications in the book, sometime after the division of the kingdom into the northern and southern kingdoms. You know, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, which happened right after Solomon's reign, Solomon being David's son. So right after his reign finished, then the kingdom split. So it had to be at least sometime after that. I think it was likely during that divided monarchy, meaning before exile, but there are also indications it could have been written from exile. It's hard to know. Um, but regardless, where the, the readers and the author find themselves is some point, actually, sometimes we always think about history, at least I think we always think about history, like the past is on the left and it moves right, doesn't it? So if we're going to do this, I need to move this way. <laughs> they're, they're further down in history, looking back, and the situation they're in is certainly, you might think this downhill, worse than the situation narrated under David's reign in these books. So it's almost like not just looking back, but looking back and up at a better time for the purpose of learning some lessons from that. So the author's going to say, let's look back at that period when the kingdom was established, and particularly under David's reign, and learn some lessons about what we ought to be thinking, what we ought to be looking for, how we ought to be living today. Purpose. What was the author's purpose in writing? I think I probably gave this to you in full there. The author of Samuel writes for the purpose of explaining the remedy for their situation 
by looking back to the rise of the early monarchy and interpreting that era through a theological grid. And specifically, that theological grid is the grid given to us in the Pentateuch, specifically the book of Deuteronomy. I mean, it's a little bit broader than that, but so much of it can be traced back to the book of Deuteronomy. And to be more specific, his purposes for his readers are, I give you three there. First one, to encourage them to hope for a faithful Davidic king. More could be said about that, but I'm trying to keep these purposes brief. So to hope for a faithful Davidic king, that that's what Israel needs. Secondly, he purposes to explain what that required faithfulness in that hoped for faithful Davidic king looks like by providing some contrasting models in the lives of the characters. And then thirdly, to entreat all the people to be faithful by the same contrasting models in the lives of the characters. So the second one saying, this is what you should be looking for in a king who is faithful. How do you define faithfulness in the king? But then also thirdly, even the whole nation also needs to have faithfulness. And so they're going to see a lot of the same things there can be applied to their life. Now the structure. It opens in the first seven chapters with what I've called a prelude. Now a prelude usually kind of introduces some of the major themes in the work that follows. Um, and so that's what's happening here in chapters 1 through 7. Then, 1 Samuel 8 through 15, we find Saul's kingship. It rises and ends pretty quickly. Then, from 1 Samuel 16 through 2 Samuel 4, David's rise to kingship. In 2 Samuel 5 through 10, we kind of really enter the, the height of David's reign, the blessings of David's faithful reign. But then we hit a turning point with chapter 11. David's turn from faithfulness and its consequences in 2 Samuel 11 through 20. And then the last four chapters, I've just termed kind of an appendix. That doesn't mean it's unimportant, but it sort of takes several events that I think seem like they're probably out of chronological order and tag them on the end and put them not in a chronological arrangement, but an arrangement that sort of has a mirroring pattern uh, where the outside mirrors each other. And as you move further towards the inside, they continue to mirror each other. We'll see that when we get there next week or two weeks from now, but the next time we're together. All right, so jumping in, surveying Samuel section by section, we'll jump in first to the prelude. So in this prelude that really introduces the book for us, the author uses a prayer of thanksgiving to introduce major themes of the book. Then the rest of this section shows the initial outworking of those themes in the life of Samuel. So first... Chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, we find Hannah's prayer and praise. It's interesting that this book that features at its center mostly all characters who we could consider to be like men of power, great men, it starts with this lowly, unknown, barren woman who's just some, some woman from the central hill country of Ephraim. But her, her prayer is going to set up so many themes that we're going to see worked out Regardless of who you are, these are kind of themes that are characteristic of God's way of working with people. So if you have your Bibles there, you might want to go and open to 1 Samuel chapter 2. You guys probably remember this story. Hannah is one of the two wives uh, of this man, Elkanah. The other wife, Peninnah, is uh, second wife. She's having lots of children. I don't know if the text tells us how many, but she clearly has children. And Hannah is barren. And that vexes Hannah, and Penny not doesn't let her live that down. She, she regularly provokes her because of that. 
And so during one of their annual visits to the tabernacle to offer sacrifice and such, um, Hannah offers this prayer, plea to the Lord, that if he will give her a son, she will dedicate him to the Lord's service. And specifically by that, she means she will kind of give him to the tabernacle. He will serve under the priest there, serve the tabernacle. Um, And so she goes home, and the Lord hears her prayer and gives her this son who becomes Samuel. And after he's weaned, she takes him back to the temple, uh, the tabernacle, and leaves him there under the high priest to basically serve there, be raised there. And when she goes back to give him to the high priest and leave him there, um, fulfilling her vow, she gives this song of thanksgiving, which we find in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. I know we're taking a little bit of time on this, but I think this, this song is really important as a lens to understand the rest of the book. So I'm not going to read the whole, the whole thing here, but um, essentially, we might say the theme of this prayer is reversal. Reversal, specifically how the Lord reverses situations that the outcome of those situations is different than we would expect based on outward appearances, based on outward assessments. The Lord tears down those who are proud, she says, and strong, those who are proud and strong, but exalts those who are humble and lowly. And it's interesting how the song moves beyond the expected focus of how the Lord has done this for her and really begins to kind of, you could say, you know, maybe get, get more altitude and begins to look beyond her own situation, almost to the national situation. And interestingly, in verse 10, actually looking forward to a coming king. So let's just look at some of this kind of in a selective way. First, look at verse nine. You'll see these themes here. The first part, he keeps the feet of his godly ones. So there's preservation for people based upon their character, godly. Then the second line, he silences the wicked, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. So notice their outcome is totally dependent upon their character. And then what's the reason? The last part of verse 9, for not by might shall a man prevail. So the outcome, Hannah says, is not related to might by kind of outward human assessments, but due to character. Look back actually at verse 4 and you'll see the very same assessment. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. You'd expect the mighty to be the ones who have strength and the feeble, well, to be shattered. But it's actually just the opposite is what she says. Then look at verse 10. She says, those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. So she expresses confidence that the Lord will judge all the earth. Then in the next line, she expresses an assumption that he will do this through his king whom he will strengthen. And he will give strength to his king. And then the last line there, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. The horn is just a metaphor for like the strength, uh, the power. And so anointed is another term that... The anointing category can refer to priests in the Old Testament, to kings, or even sometimes to prophets, but kind of by default most commonly refers to kings, and clearly here in parallelism with the king, that's clearly who it's referring to. So take note, even before we come to any of the kings in Israel, Hannah is looking forward to a future king through whom the Lord will work, specifically through whom the Lord will judge all the earth. 
So we might say that Hannah's song models the things the author of the book encourages in his readers. It models trust in the Lord to work through his king. It models confidence that faithfulness is what matters, not might, for the Lord can easily reverse the expectations created by outward appearances. And Hannah's song sets up the themes that will be fleshed out through the book. So let's see how that's fleshed out first in the rest of this prelude. In chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 1a, this theme of the Lord's reversal of expectations, those are the the reversal of the expectations created by outward appearances, because uh, those are reversed because the Lord looks on the heart, and that is fleshed out uh, first in the rise of Samuel in the rejection of the high priest Eli and his wicked family. So here's this nobody Samuel who really has nothing to his name. He was, you might even think, orphaned. Um, his mother obviously had a good purpose, a good intention, but left there um, at the tabernacle to serve, and he has like no pedigree, unlike the high priests who are serving already. But the high priests are wicked, 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 um, especially Eli's sons. But Eli himself has not, not cut any slack there. And so the, there's that issue. They've already got power, but they're wicked. And here's Samuel, who has not really nothing to his credit, but he's faithful. He's listening to the Lord. Uh, he, he seeks to be obedient. Um, and we're going to see here a reversal of that, that essentially you keep seeing these contrasts, how the Lord is with Samuel and blessing him. And yet there's specifically like uh, this man of God who comes with a prophecy at the end of chapter two and basically says, Eli, you, your house is done for. There will never be a blessed day in the future of your family. Um, it's all going to be hard because of your re- rebelliousness, because of your wickedness. Um, and then as we move into subsequent chapters, we find that actually Samuel replaces Eli as judge during this period of the judges before there's a king in Israel. Then in chapter four, verse one, the second half of that verse, all the way through the end of chapter 17 or chapter seven, you might think of this as methods to securing victory contrasted. So what happens first is that scene you guys probably remember of the loss of the ark. So they say, ah, we, we keep losing to the Philistines. I know what we'll do. We'll kind of twist the Lord's arm to make sure we win by bringing the ark with us. Because if his presence is with us, surely we'll win. So they bring the ark. Now that's nowhere anywhere prescribed, right? The Lord never promises that he will bless them through that means. What's the means to inheriting the Lord's blessings? Obedience. Good. Obedience. And so they're not being obedient, but they're trying some kind of shortcut to, to make sure they inherit those promises. And so the Lord has nothing to do with that, right? He, he just says, they're promptly defeated. In fact, I won't take the time here. But it goes through, like, spends several verses explaining them, getting the, the ark, taking it out, and then it's just like, in one verse, and the Philistines overran them. But the Lord's not going to let the Philistines misunderstand, thinking that this was because of some kind of weakness on the Lord's part. The fact that his promises aren't going forward, the fact that they aren't gaining any more territory isn't because of any kind of incompetence on the Lord's part, but because the terms of the covenant require Israel's obedience. And so lest the Philistines think that this is because of their might or because their God, Dagon, Dagon, is stronger than the Israel's God, uh, Yahweh, he actually just brings this plague all throughout. Whatever city that goes to, there was five major cities of the Philistines, and wherever it goes in that circuit, there's this plague breaking out among the Philistines in that city. And you guys probably remember the story of uh, the, the idol of Dagon. He actually one night, is they wake up in the morning and they find the ark in the temple, their temple to Dagon, and he's fallen down flat, basically like worshiping Yahweh represented by the ark. 
As I put him back up, what was that? It's kind of concerning, but uh, we'll keep it like this, see what happens the next day. This time he falls down. Actually, his head is cut off. His hands are cut off. Um, so the Lord's making it very clear. You know, I'm teaching my people a lesson, but don't you get the wrong idea. And then eventually the ark doesn't come completely back. They decide, the Philistines decide, we've had enough of this. This is not worth it. So they kind of put it on a cart, and it goes away against all odds, right? These are um, heifers that have just had, is that the right term? I don't know. Do you call a heifer after she's already had babies, calves? Is that still fair? Is that right? Anyway, I don't know all of this bovine terminology. I should be asking Ethan. Anyways, a female cow who has already had calves, just had calves, and those calves, or the, the female cows, leave the calves behind while they take the, uh, take the ark back into Israelite territory. I need to avoid getting into details here. So let's keep moving. Chapter 7, you find this very different method Here, Samuel basically gathers the people together and says, listen, the Lord called you to obedience. Put away the balls. Put away the Ashtarot. Stop worshiping other gods, and the Lord will deal with this menace of the Philistines. The people repent. They do that. They put those things away. They go out to battle, and just as quickly it's reported that they overrun the Philistines. And they deal with it. There's rest in the land. So you see those contrasting methods of securing victory, securing the promises of God are put side by side here in this section. So how would we summarize this prelude? I've summarized it for you in this way. The prelude to the book sets forth an overarching theme that runs through the book of Samuel. Namely, the Lord blesses and uses the humble righteous person to accomplish his purposes, even when they lack any merit from a human perspective. In this way, it contributes to the purpose of the book by setting forth this foundational truth. Now, all this very generic principle starts getting applied in very specific ways to kingship in Israel, beginning in chapter 8. So, chapter 8, verse, uh, chapter eight through for chapter 15. In this section, we see a recounting of Israel's request for a king. The Lord's response to that. Saul becoming Israel's first king. We see Saul's sins resulting in the kingdom being taken from Saul. So first let's look at chapter 8. The request of the people for a king and the Lord's response to their request. The people ask Samuel to appoint a king to lead them like all the nations have. It says in verse 5 of chapter 8. Chapter 20 specifically says they want a king who will fight their battles for them. Now, Samuel understands the people to be sinning in this request. And the Lord basically affirms that, stating, they have rejected me from being king over them. But the Lord instructs Samuel to appoint a king over them anyway. Pause. Stop there. It seems... That when you just read this, it could be read. Let me say it this way. Chapter 8 could be read to suggest that kingship was a bad idea for Israel, period. Right? You guys see that? You read it that way? Could you, could you see that? We're entering into a little parenthesis here. So slow down. Just engage with me here. It could be read that way. I, I, could, I can understand why, at least microscopically, parachuting into 1 Samuel 8, it might appear as though the problem is that if Israel has a human king, that is fundamentally incompatible with having the Lord as king. It could seem that way. So that's kind of one side of this apparent tension. 
On the other side, from very early in the Old Testament, there has been an anticipation for kings or for a king such that it is, it is a very difficult to believe that that's actually what's going on here. And so let's look at some of those those passages from earlier in the Old Testament. I think for this section, I went like great length. I basically gave you all my notes here just because I realized that this is one of those things. I, I'm not sure exactly why. I think for whatever reason, we seem when we read our Bibles to like just gloss over, just glance over, move past all of those expectations and previous revelation about a king. But when we come here, this sticks out to us for some reason. I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's the stuff of good sermons. I don't know. But for some reason, 1 Samuel 8, like Israel asked for a king. And that was bad, sticks out to us. But the fact that actually kingship was God's plan all along, the problem was something different, doesn't. So that's why I took a little bit more time to kind of unpack this here. So I realize it can be a little bit of a confusing thing. So I want us to think about this. So I've given you there, so we don't have to be flipping, but we can move through them quickly, a large number of texts. But let's just quickly read through them while I, I set them up. So Genesis seventeen six. The Lord promised to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. So we're saying that the Abrahamic covenant is kind of like what rules over all of salvation history. It's the foundation for everything, all of God's salvation work. And right here at the core of it in in Genesis 17 is this promise for kings coming from David's line. Then, just later in that same chapter, this promise is repeated, but with regard to Sarah. I will bless her, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her, and she will become a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then later, Genesis 35, 11, the Lord repeats to Jacob the promise he made to Abraham. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. Then at the end of Genesis, as Jacob is giving to his sons this, we call it like a prophetic blessing. It's a combination of a blessing on his sons, uh, the 12 sons, but also prophecy included in there. When he gets to Judah, what he says is, the scepter, this is part of it at least, part of the blessing to Judah states, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So, This earlier expectation in chapter 17, chapter 35, that from the line of Abraham will come uh, kings is now further narrowed. When you get to Jacob, now you have an option of 12 different lines, right? Through which it could come. And he specifically says it's going to come through the line of Judah. So it's narrowed down there. Then we jump on ahead to Numbers 24. Numbers 23, Numbers 24. That's an interesting passage where you've got this enigmatic figure, Balaam who on the one hand, you're scratching your head, like this guy's a prophet of the Lord, it seems. Whatever he's saying, like, seems to be from the Lord, and yet, is this guy, like, really a faithful prophet? Um, But he nonetheless clearly is prophesying true things from the Lord. And in the fourth oracle, the fourth one, the last one he has, this is what he says. He says, I see him, referring to some future figure, but not now. I behold him, but not near. That's all indication that he's going to come in the future. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter, ruler language, shall rise from Israel and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession while Israel performs valiantly. One from Jacob shall have dominion. 
I should remind you of God's creation purposes. He created man that they would, in his likeness, in his image, that they would exercise dominion over the earth and will destroy the remnant from the city. So another reminder that there's this anticipation looking forward to a future king, ruler, to come from the line of Israel. Now, uh, Deuteronomy 17. We looked at this passage earlier. Deuteronomy 17 gives these instructions for a king. Basically, when you're in the land, you're going to ask for a king. And here's what should be true of this king. Um, when you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it and you say I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me you shall surely set a king over you the Lord says whom the Lord your God chooses and then he goes on and gives those instructions we read in a previous week about what that king should be like and basically it was two parts right what he should not do he shouldn't basically follow the world's way of looking to outward strength to position himself for victory you know uh, treaties through multiplying wives, amassing a standing army, multiplying chariots, multiplying wealth, gold and silver. Shouldn't do those things, but what should he do? He should give his attention to Torah, to, to the Pentateuch, to, to the covenant through which everything's being mediated. He should make a copy of it for himself because like David, he should meditate on it when? Day and night. He needs his own copy to do that. And he needs to lead the nation in covenant faithfulness. Pause there. When I say covenant faithfulness, that is entirely synonymous with just obedience to the Lord. What does it mean to be obedient to the Lord? Well, he's said that in his covenant with his people. This is what it looks like. This is what I expect of you. So covenant faithfulness just means obedience to the Lord. Now, Judges. We saw, we left off last time we were together, seeing that last part of Judges, how it begins and ends. Begins in chapter 17, verse 6. Ends in chapter 21, 25. Chapter 21, verse 25. And states that there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And holds out this hope for a king. Then, we already saw in 1 Samuel 2.10, Hannah's prayer for thanksgiving. She concludes that the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. And then, um, other texts prior to 1 Samuel are suggestive, if not quite as explicit, so I put those in a footnote, therefore, if you want to pursue those at another time. And also, there are other texts that indicate that human kingship over Israel is entirely compatible with the Lord's kingship over Israel. Let's catch that. Human kingship is entirely compatible with the Lord's kingship. As I mentioned, when we talked about Genesis 1 and God's purpose in creating man in his image and his likeness. He would exercise dominion. We can think of that as a vice regency ruling under the Lord. It doesn't usurp, doesn't replace, doesn't negate the Lord's kingship. It's an outworking, a tangible outworking on the earth of the Lord's ultimate authority. So there's a whole sequence of passages there you can look at that will reinforce that. Now, how do we best understand these chapters then, particularly 1 Samuel 8, such that it is consistent with that expectation we've seen of kings not just a generic expectation this might happen, but actually that the outworking of God's promises seem to, in some, to some extent, be bound up with kingship. How, how, do we, how do we understand 1 Samuel 8 so that we can maintain both of those? I think it's an issue of motivation. Yes, the people absolutely sinned in asking for a king. And with, with their motivations, with their motivations... Asking for a king with those motivations was a rejection of the Lord as king. Let's look at two passages. 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 20. They say, 
There shall be a king over us that our king may go out before us and fight our battles. To whom does the battle belong? The Lord. The The Lord's the one who fights your battles. And the Lord is intentional to make sure his people know that. What does he do with Gideon's men? He whittles them down, right? To 300. So there can be no doubt about that. He wants his people who have to go in and conquer all these nations in the land. He tells them that their king can't have chariots or any of these other things that the nations are going to fight do have. What hope is there? Because the Lord's going to intervene, he's going to take care of those things. Just trust him. So they aren't trusting the Lord. They're saying the Lord trusting him to fight our battles. That seems kind of abstract. We want a king and a king who plays the part. A king who maybe... How about this? If we could find a man who's a whole head taller than anyone else, like that's a guy we could trust. The Lord, he, we can't see the Lord, but that's a guy we could trust to fight our battles. That's what they're doing. Look at 1 Samuel 12, 12. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the sons of Ammon, came against you, this is Samuel speaking to Israel, indicting them, then in that situation, so what's the situation? Foreign enemies threatening them with military strength. Then, in that, in that context, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. And then Samuel says, although the Lord your God was your king, meaning you should have been trusting him to fight your battles, but in the moment you said, we, we can't trust the Lord. We won't trust the Lord. We want a king, and we want to put our trust in him. Can you guys see how in that context, kingship becomes a terribly wicked thing? But not kingship per se. Kingship sought after with those motivations. Is that making sense? I understand that if this is the first time you've heard this, this can be a little difficult to swallow. Any thoughts? Any pushback? Good. All right. So in conclusion, it seems best to understand 1 Samuel 8, not as rejecting the institution of kingship for Israel, but calling out Israel for their reasons we're asking for a king. Now, I tacked on here a little addendum, something I anticipated, the question I anticipated at the end of Judges when we were talking about how, how could king be sort of that, that thing that is the hope of Israel when, hey, if we read the Bible, we know the history of kingship of monarchy in Israel, like it ends in exile, doesn't it? Don't they seem to get worse and worse, particularly in the northern kingdom? Maybe there are some good guys in the southern kingdom like Hezekiah and Josiah. Maybe a few others who are like moderately good, but doesn't, it seems like a bad deal for them. How, how could that be the hope? Was it a misguided hope? Um, maybe the author of Judges is being a bit sarcastic after all this hope in Judges. Then he says, hey, maybe a king will work next, and we're supposed to see through that, that no, no, no one else besides the Lord's going to work. I think these, these two points I put there for you help to explain, help to give more context. A righteous king like David actually did improve the situation considerably, the situation as it was in Judges. The situation under David was remarkably different. It was significantly an improvement over where they were during the Judges period. They came closest in all of their history to inheriting the fullness of the Abrahamic promises under David's reign. I think from another perspective, if you look at it from the perspective of First and Second Kings, maybe under Solomon's reign. But at least from the perspective of First and Second Samuel, it seems like he presents as though there begins to be a decline with the sin, with the declension of um, David's morality. So he begins to turn from faithfulness to the Lord. So it reaches this apex in the context of First and Second Samuel 
under David's reign. That also, the prophets of the Old Testament, the very prophets who are prophesying coming exile, who are indicting Israel for all of their wickedness, indicting their kings for their wickedness, those same prophets continue to look beyond the exile and talk about a future restoration led by a son of David, led by a Davidic king. So the issue in the Old Testament isn't kingship. That wasn't what led to exile. The issue was unfaithful kings. They needed a faithful king, a king after the pattern of Deuteronomy 17. David wasn't that king. Solomon wasn't that king. And it only seemed to get worse after that. Though those kings, like David and Solomon and maybe a little bit Hezekiah and Josiah, begin to function somewhat as patterns for that future king, ultimately they fell short of that idea. Okay. Any? Yes? Go ahead. Um, I guess two questions. First question is, do you think that uh, when the Israelites took the land of Canaan, that they took the full extent of the promised land as it was mapped out? Or do you think that there was still some of the land that they had yet to conquer? So, I'm going to leave that for Nate to answer. No, um, I... <laughs> I think that this kind of goes back to that issue in Judges that I don't think we actually talked about. I left it for you guys to read about that tension. That the authors consistently want you to see the progress toward fulfillment. And we tend to think of fulfillment as like a one and done thing. The Lord prophesies a single event, and we're looking forward to that single event. But in many ways, think of it not so much as prophecies. Obviously, our clear prophecies are kind of a one and done type of fulfillment. But many of them are more so promises, which can have kind of multiple fulfillments. I've sometimes used the example before of imagine... You're seeing sort of this, this uh, movie unplaying, uh, out, playing out, and you see a father sitting down by his daughter's bedside, and she's scared, and he says, uh, listen, sweetie, I'll make sure you stay safe. I'll, I'll protect you. And then you fast forward a couple years later, and she gets ready to run out into the street, and he, he grabs her, pulls her back. Oh. And if you're watching this unfolding, you might say, boom, fulfillment. That's it. That's what I was looking forward to, a prophecy of that. Well, no, that'd be to misunderstand the, the nature of what he was talking about, right? What he was talking about was a, a general promise that can be fulfilled over and over again. And, and so we almost don't even think about fulfillment as much as keeping the promise, right? So in some sense, I think that might be a helpful category to shift how we're thinking about it. They're saying the Lord's keeping his promises each time we're moving closer and closer. The Lord's keeping every last word he has. And under David and Solomon, they reach the furthest extent. They even reach up to the Euphrates, the land between the rivers, um, which was said to be the farthest extent north of the initial land promise. I mentioned before, I think there's a, an expansion of the land promises that you see in texts like Psalm 2, about him ruling to the ends of the earth, but um, all the way up to that point. But there's land that's in modern-day Lebanon, like Tyre and Sidon, that he never conquers. And so I think that the, the text both puts an emphasis on how much the Lord fulfills, and yet still helps us see that it wasn't quite there yet. So I would say, no, it was never fully fulfilled. And we step back and view it in the abstract like that. Um, so, okay, great. <laughs> and the second question is, like, does that kind of play into, um, with your statement about, like, uh, the king not necessarily being, it's not a wicked thing. Yeah. Like God's plan. Yeah. Uh, in the same way, isn't that kind of how the, you know, the Jews expected the king and the Messiah to come in a certain way to be a one and done fulfillment and they didn't necessarily, they didn't get that and then us as believers 
we also can see certain things that they're here now, but they're not yet completely totally. fulfilled. Totally. I think that the books of Samuel lay out this paradigm very clearly. So let me come back around to that as we kind of finish up tonight. Just go a little bit further here. Then I'm going to wrap it up in terms of kind of some takeaways and make some of those connections. But very good. Those are good connections to be making. All right, so there where you see D, this is picking up and continuing with this section we're in, Saul's kingship. Um, as that next in chapter 9, Saul goes, Samuel goes out, searches for a king. Saul's identified as the king that they want. This is their kind of king who has outward promise. Saul's chosen, anointed as king. And then really the rest of the section is sort of a mixed review of Saul. We find both successes there's a sense in which the Lord is blessing Saul. There's some benefit, some advance under his rule. And yet we find tragic sin that leads to the kingship being removed from him. Saul's successes. Um, we find him delivering the city of Jabesh-Gilead from the Ammonites. That was that figure, Nahash. Um, that's in chapter 11. And then also in uh, chapter 14, verses 47 and 48, I'll just read this one to you. Now, when Saul had taken the kingdom over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, the sons of Ammon, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment. He acted valiantly and defeated the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. You guys see that? There's, there's clear evidence of successes. There's sort of mixed reviews here. And yet... There's two very clear instances of sin in his life, chapter 13 and chapter 15. Chapter 13 is where Samuel tells him, go to Mitzpah and wait there. It was, Mitzpah, was it Mitzpah or Shiloh? It was one of those places. Wait there, and uh, I will come there, and we'll make a sacrifice. I'll make a sacrifice before you go to battle with the Philistines. But he and his army are there waiting, and the Philistines are encroaching. The threat is getting more and more ominous from them, and he's getting uneasy. Where's Samuel to do this? Samuel's the prophet. Samuel speaks on behalf of the Lord. To disobey Samuel is to disobey the Lord. And he, without trusting the Lord to handle all these matters, he says it's better to assess the situation with my own human eyes and to say, I think it's better to disobey the Lord and fight them now than to wait and obey the Lord. He does that, and the Lord says, you know, the kingship's taken from you. Basically, you can't lead the people to covenant obedience if you won't obey me. And then chapter 15. Samuel instructs Saul to destroy the Amalekites, all of them, and all of their possessions. That thing we looked at previously called the ban, to put it on the Amalekites. For the background on that, you can see Exodus 17, 14, and Deuteronomy 25, 17 to 19. Essentially, in summary, they attacked Israel as they were coming out of Egypt from behind. And the Lord basically says, there will be a time in the future when we're going to completely wipe out the Amalekites. And so then even in Deuteronomy 25, he says, when you're at rest in the land... You must wipe them out. It says, he ends, do not forget. So then Samuel, this faithful prophet, says, okay, it's time to wipe out the Amalekites. Saul goes and does that. The Lord gives him victory over them. But he gets to the end and says, oh, let's hold off a bit here, people. Let's, let's reason here. King, king, can we show mercy to the king? It's probably good for kings to be shown mercy. So let's keep Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Let's keep him alive. The Lord said, destroy every last one of them. Then... The people say, but look at all the sheep, the cows, look at, listen to their lowing, the bleeding, like, wow, these, these could be useful. Well, at the very least, we could at least give some of them to the Lord and sacrifice, right? Surely he prefers sacrifice over obedience, doesn't he? But what is it that Samuel says? The Lord prefers obedience rather than sacrifice, right? 
And so that's the kind of the, the straw that breaks the camel's back, as it were. Um, and Saul loses the kingship altogether at that point. It's actually interesting. Going off script here. I think this is correct. If I remember correctly, Esther. In the book of Esther, remember this figure, Haman? Haman's actually identified as a descendant of Agag. Is that right? You remember? That? Yeah. So this sort of connection here that, like, don't wipe them all out. Then these people will continue to threaten you uh, even later, many centuries later. So how would we summarize this section, 8 through 15? Israel demands a king because they refuse to trust the Lord, but they decided to place their trust ultimately in a human king who seems promising. Kingship itself has been the plan all along and is not a problem, but people looked to a king to put their trust in him rather than in the Lord. The Lord does work through King Saul to push back Israel's enemies, but the Lord rejected Saul as king because of his disobedience. So this section contributes to the purpose of the book by, number one, warning the reader. Number, number one purpose is to encourage them to hope in a future Davidic king, but wants to warn them against a misplaced confidence, placing their confidence in this king rather than in the Lord. The Lord... Uh, they're supposed to hope in this king as the means by which the Lord in whom is their ultimate hope will be working. And then number two, by illustrating the necessity of an obedient king. You can have a king, but if he's not obedient, it's not going to help you at all. So emphasizing the necessity of an obedient king. Then we'll just jump into this next section um, and kind of survey very high level. David's rise to kingship. So right out of the gates, we find David being anointed in chapter 16. And all these themes from Hannah's song come out, Right? David is looked over, overlooked at first, right? Is that funny? Overlook and look over have two very different meanings. He's overlooked at first um, in the sense that they don't even call him out. Like he's the last one, the youngest one. Surely it's not him, but that's whom the Lord chooses, following kind of that pattern of reversals. He has really nothing to kind of suggest that he would be the best one um, to do that. Then... Uh, oh, sorry, I should mention that here is where the Lord reminds Samuel of the theme we're all so familiar with, where he says, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature. That's referring to the first of um, Jesse's sons. Because I have rejected him, for God sees not as man sees. For, the, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Can you hear echoes of Hannah's uh, song there? Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving. And then in the very next chapter, chapter 17, probably the best well-known of all the scenes in the book. Um, that's David and Goliath scene. But essentially you have Goliath, this Philistine against whom the Lord said, you will take them and beat them. But Israel's sort of cowering. And who's the best match for this giant among Israel to go out and fight them? Saul, the man who's a head taller than all the rest, right? He's sort of the giant among them, but he's unwilling to do this. Because he's looking, he's assessing the situation as a man assesses the situation. But then David shows up and David, just in this humble, simple faith, basically says, these are enemies of the Lord. Like, the battle is his. Let me do it. I'll go out there and do it. And everyone's like, whoa, who are you, young guy? Like, are you, are you ready for this? Let's try to put some armor on you. Nope, it's too, you're, you're way too small even to hold that up. Um, but he says, don't worry. The, the Lord's got this. Let me just go fight him. And he goes out and basically shows that he is what Israel's king ought to be. A man who trusts the Lord and is obedient to him. Um, Israel wanted a king to fight her battles and Saul's the guy they chose. Saul's failing them. But David comes along and he's the one who actually 
doesn't. But not because he thinks he's the one to be, for their trust to be put in, but because he knows the Lord is the one who can do it. Look at chapter 17, verses 45 to 47. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, 45 to 47. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands. Who's going to deliver you? The Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. See those same themes coming out again? The Lord has it under control. Just trust and obey him. And so basically to the end of 1 Samuel, all through this section, David's rise to kingship, Saul continues in power. Saul continues to be the one who's technically on the throne, but David's now been anointed the king, and the Holy Spirit, the Lord's Spirit, has kind of ratified that by leaving Saul and coming upon David, kind of anointing him uh, for the, to be the king. And yet, you just continually see, while David sits, well, sorry, while Saul remains on the scene, basically Saul being a foil for David. It was going to be a literary foil, basically they're brought in so that you can see the contrast. By, by, by providing contrast, you're better able to see the character quality of the main character. And so Saul continues to be this contrast to David. Saul's petty. Saul's continually trying to kill the, the legitimate king, David. He's always after him. Even though David's fighting and getting successes and serving the nation well, the nation's being blessed because of David's work. And yet Saul's after him, trying to kill him. And then when David has an opportunity to kill Saul, he says, listen, he's kind of technically still the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to touch. I'm going to trust the Lord with this. And he trusts the Lord with that. So you just see this contrast where David is clearly seen again and again. He is the stuff that Israel's kings are made of. He's, you might say, messianic material. He's the one through whom the Lord is going to work. And that's what you see all the way up through the end. Now I'm going to stop there at the end, basically, of 1 Samuel, um, even though that section goes over. But we'll pick up 2 Samuel next week. Um, I just want to kind of conclude here with some of those connections you made. In many ways, the New Testament authors show how David provides a pattern for Christ, right? He came sort of in an unassuming way, without impressiveness, and people rejected him for that reason. And he was first rejected before he's going to come back in triumph, right? We know he's already victorious in the sense he's been raised, but that hasn't been demonstrated to be the case. And he's going to come back. Um, and I think some of the principles that we just, I'm going to take a few principles away here, real, real brief application. We, like Israel, are tempted to put our confidence when it comes to the church's mission, to Christ's mission, into the things that we can see, tangible things. We think, man, Christ's mission will be advanced if only we can get some power. If we can get some people in positions of power, wow, then we'll really, the world will be changed. It'll be better. Or, man, if we can just have some financial resources to leverage. See, that would happen for the purpose of the Great Commission. And I, I'm not a prophet, but... It doesn't seem that increasing uh, power or increasing resources at the disposal of believers is in the future for believers in America. But that doesn't bode negatively one bit for the future of Christ's mission. What matters is faithfulness, that we be utterly faithful to Christ's mission, 
trusting him in that. And it might look like what it looked like for Christ to fulfill the mission, right? How did he overcome? How was he victorious? By being put to death, right? And Revelation says that's how those who are following Christ will be victorious in their faithful witness to the end. So I think those principles are just absolutely critical for us. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your revelation and just for its clarity, for its helpfulness. I pray, Lord, that we would be people who do trust you and follow you faithfully because we know that you have all of this in your hand. You are the ultimate king. We know that Christ reigns on the throne of David now, having fulfilled so much of what this looks forward to and has accomplished so much of what Israel looked forward to, even in sort of this anticipation of a future faithful Davidic king, has already been fulfilled. So much we have in terms of fulfilled promises in the rearview mirror. I pray, Lord, for us as a church that we would be edified, that we would have more confidence because of that, and be faithful in the mission to witnessing, to discipleship, to our care for our own heart, that we would be growing in maturity. Lord, we do thank you for your word. I thank you for the attentiveness of these, my dear brothers and sisters, and pray, Lord, that you would um, just keep this word in their ears, that they would be encouraged by it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.